Well, about now, several of you are thinking, I need to get in a life group. And uh, we hope that's the case. Uh, life groups are an important part of our ministry here at Alliance. Make a big group like this, uh, divide it up into little smaller groups, 8, 10, 12 people, where you can do life together and where you can be cared for in that kind of, of way. And if you're interested in uh, participating in a life group, then we'd encourage you to let us know. You can write on the connection card or, or let the office know, and we'll see about getting connected. But that also means um, if we have more people come forward and say, I want to be in a life group, we also need more life group leaders. And I know many of you could lead um, a life group, and I would encourage you to prayerfully uh, consider that. Uh, Carl Sandburg, Pulitzer Prize-winning American author and poet, seemed fascinated with the question, where are we going? At one point, um, he wrote these words, I'm an idealist. I don't know where I'm going, but I'm on my way. Born in Galesburg, Illinois, he spent most of his adult years in Chicago, But you might be interested to know that he spent the last 22 years of his life in Flat Rock, North Carolina, just south of Hendersonville, uh, with his prize-winning milk goats. Now, many of you studied Sandberg's works uh, in high school, which was a collection of free verse, which basically means it's poetry that doesn't have to rhyme, kind of like roses are red, violets are blue, go Tar Heels, something like that. He actually won two Pulitzer Prizes, one in 1940, another in 1951. His first major collection of poems was published in 1916 in a work called Chicago Poems. Among the collection was a piece entitled The Limited. It goes like this. I am riding on a limited express, one of the crack trains of the nation. Hurling across the prairie in blue haze and dark air go 15 all-steel coaches holding a 1,000 people. All the coaches shall be scrap and rust, and all the men and women laughing in the diners and sleepers shall pass to ashes. I ask a man in the smoke of where he is going, and he answers, Omaha. I, I think Sandberg hoped for a different answer to the question. Frankly, so do I. Where are, we, where are we going? At some point is the question that everyone asks, what is the meaning of life? Is this all there is? Why are we here? Where are we going? I don't, I don't know if Sandberg ever figured it out, if he ever really knew the answer. You see, later near the end of his life, he wrote a verse entitled, interestingly enough, Be Ready. Listen to the, well, to the hope offered in this work. Be land ready, for you shall go back to land. Be sea ready, for you have been nine-tenths water, and the salt taste shall cling to your mouth. Be sky ready, for air, air has been so needful to you. You, sh- you shall go back, back to the sky. That's from 1960. It apparently didn't win him another Pulitzer. Lots of hope there, don't you think? Where are we going? Obviously, Sandberg wanted to know, and he, he wanted, apparently, to, to be ready. It was, it was his question. It was a question of every thinking person at some point. Where are we going? 
It's to some degree, it is the question that Jesus answered in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and, and 25. Jesus, he said, I'm, I'm coming back. We're, we're, we're going somewhere, and he too wants us to be ready. The whole discourse began with the disciples' question at the beginning of chapter 24. Tell us, Jesus, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? Where is all of this going, Jesus, and how will we know when we get there? And with all due respect to any corn huskers present, please, please somebody tell me it's not Omaha. Jesus spent most of chapter 24 answering the question of His disciples, basically saying, uh, no one knows when it's all going to end, but, but when you see the sign of the coming of the Son of Man, you'll know it. And so, since we don't have the foggiest idea of when that will be, since there is something else indeed coming, since we are going somewhere besides Omaha, Jesus spends the last part of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 encouraging us to be ready for what is coming. He, he gives us a glimpse of where we're going. He does so by giving us four different parables, all of which stress some aspect of watchfulness, of preparedness, uh, of being ready. Chapter 24, he gave us two parables, the parable of the, land, uh, of the homeowner and the thief, and then the parable of the two Slaves. At the beginning of chapter 25, he gave the parable of the ten virgins, not 72, sorry. Uh, this morning, we're going to look at the fourth uh, parable, the parable of the talents, in which Jesus shows us how we know we're ready. The bottom line is, this is not all there is. Something more awaits. We're going somewhere. I would suggest we be ready. This parable is actually the longest in the book of Matthew. Aren't you excited? Read it with me, Matthew chapter 25. We'll look at verse 14 through verse 30. It's a long, it's a long parable, but I, I think it'll keep your attention. Verse 14, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with him and gained five more talents. And in the same way, the one who had received two gained two more. Uh, but he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those slaves came and, and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and, and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, and we know these words, we can quote them, right? Well done. Good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the, the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. Verse, next verse, exactly like the verse we just read, verse 21. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And then the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, and then went away and hid your talent in the ground. But hey, you have what is yours. The master answered and said, you wicked, lazy slave, you, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I gather, scattered no seed, then you ought to have put my 
money in the bank. It's the least you could have done, earned your half a percent. On my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore, take away the talent from him and, and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that bother anyone just a bit? I mean, at first glance, this parable appears to be a little confusing, maybe even disturbing. A careful study of the previous parable, the one of the ten virgins, makes clear that we are made ready by the presence of the oil. That's the oil of redemption and the oil of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I like that, but now we read this parable and it appears as if we are made ready by the things that we do. I mean, we're going somewhere. Looks like we're headed to judgment. And Jesus is going to see what we've done, and if we've done enough, if we've produced enough talents, it's heaven for us. If not, big trouble, weeping, gnashing. Dude, I mean, what is going on? Does this mean that we earn our way into our master's good graces into heaven by what we do? I don't know about you, but I would never make it. Actually, I do know about you. You wouldn't either. I could never do enough to pay for my sin. This leaves me a little trembling. So let's take a close, closer look at the parable because I believe that it does contain both a strong encouragement and a strong warning for us. The outline is going to go like this. We're going to see the responsibilities that we've received, uh, the, the responses that we can have to carrying out those responsibilities, and then the reckoning uh, that we will face. Now, let, let's start with our responsibilities, verses 14 and 15. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey. What is it? it it's in the italics on, uh, on the screen, which means it's not actually in the Greek because Jesus is actually continuing what he's introduced in verse 1 where he said the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins. Here Jesus is continuing the comparison to heaven. The kingdom of heaven is just like a man about to go on a journey. Later we find out it's a very long journey, meaning this man is going to be gone for a very long time. So he calls together three of his most trusted slaves to distribute his wealth. It is his desire that while he is gone that his assets, what belongs to him, be put to work and a profit be made. To one slave, he gives five talents, to another two, to another one. Now, the Greek word for talent, this will be a surprise to you, is talenton. In fact, it, it's from this parable that we get our English word talent. Um, and as you think of talents, what is it that you normally think of? You think of maybe natural abilities or, or maybe even acquired skills uh, through much practice, which is the way this parable is often interpreted. God has given you talents, abilities, skills. I would even add spiritual gifts that need to be used for the kingdom. And while that may be true enough, in fact, I think it is right, let's look first at the context. In this context, a talent is simply a sum of money. The kinds of 
coins that made up the talent, gold, silver, or copper, dictated its value. But it was generally held that one talent was equivalent to 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii. One denarius was a day's wage for the common labor. So what you have are 6,000 days wages for the common labor in one talent. It's about 22. I did the math for you. You can relax. That's 22 years of work for one talent. So the man who received five talents received 110 years worth of wages. That's more money than he could possibly make in a lifetime. The man who received two, that's 44 years. That's about a lifetime worth of work. You get the idea. Do the math on your own, okay? Whatever it is that you make. Students, you don't make nothing, all right? But what is it that you hope to make? Okay, let's say 50000 a year. The man who received five talents received about $5.5 million. This was an enormous sum of money, an enormous grant of responsibility. And the, the amount of money isn't as important as the fact that it was not their money. It was the master's money. And each slave was given a grant, in, notice, in proportion to his own ability. We're going to come back to that in, in just a moment. What do we have at this point in the parable? Jesus is the master, right? He's going away on a long journey, meaning it's going to be a long period of time between his first and second comings. While he is gone, he is left with people who claim to be his followers, significant grants of responsibilities. Remember, we looked at that last week. As he ascended into heaven, he distributed gifts to his people, each according to their own ability. Now, is this speaking of talents as, as we know them, ability, skills? I think, of course, it does, but it includes, I believe, much more than that. It includes a recognition that everything, I want you to get this, everything that we have comes at the hands of the master. It all belongs to him. We have the responsibility to do something with those grants for the kingdom. Well, one author I have said it this way. I think it's a good summation. The primary meaning of the talents, therefore, has to do with the special privileges and opportunities entrusted to Jesus' disciples as subjects of the kingdom of heaven. When the master goes away, it is their responsibility to get on with the job he has entrusted to them. He will leave behind great potential. But he expects that potential to be developed through the faithful discipleship of his people. That sounds familiar. In other words, he expects us to use what he has left us with to complete the mission. Everything you have, mission. Notice again, we are each given different grants of responsibilities, each according to his or her own ability. Which means, let me just encourage you just a little bit here, which means God expects me to do what I can with what He has given me, not what I can do with what He has given you. And He expects you to do what He has given you, not what He has given me, which means we can stop the comparison stuff. I don't have to be you. You don't have to be me. Being me is tiring enough for me. Trying to be me and Billy Graham is exhausting. I only have to be faithful. 
I don't have to perform at levels at which I am incapable, and frankly, neither do you. Take the bag of talents, whatever it is, the skills, the gifts, the abilities, the passions, the opportunities, the responsibilities, those things that God has left with you and be faithful. Don't try to be somebody else. Do what God has called you to do with what He has left you to do it with. Which brings us to the second point, the different responses. You see, you have a, there, there are some responses here. We have in verses 16 to 18. In verses 16 to 17, we read that the first two slaves, the one who had received the five talents, the two talents, immediately, immediately, notice that, went and traded with them. There was no delay. They understood the urgency of the command, and so they quickly put the money to work and earned a profit. We're not told exactly what they did. That's not important, you see. It's not important. They did what they were able to do with their talents. What is important is that they were busy with the master's assets, with what the master had left them to do. This is what we are called to do. Be faithful with what God has both gifted and called us to do. Okay? Good. Third slave. Not so good. Took the one talent he'd received, buried it into the ground. Now, you need to know something here. Now, this was not uncommon. People often took their valuables and buried them for safekeeping. It was actually considered safer than a bank. In fact, a later rabbinic maxim even said, money can be guarded only by keeping it in the earth. So that seems to be the intention of this slave. He says, I'll bury it, I'll keep it safe, and then when the master returns, I'll, return, I'll give it back to him, all safe and sound. So at this point, you have to understand that there's nothing really wrong with the parable. In fact, I will suggest to you that when Jesus gets to the end, what he says about this third slave would be shocking to the disciples. The application of the parable at this point is obvious enough. Having declared to be followers of the master Jesus, he has left us certain responsibilities. Here, they are, here it is, complete the mission. By His Spirit, He has given us what we need to carry out that duty. We have the gifts, the indwelling, enabling presence of the Spirit. We have talents. We have skills. We have abilities. We have resources to include resources of money and time. Jesus has left us everything that we have, everything that we need to be able to accomplish much for His kingdom. It does make me wonder how much could have been done for the kingdom if people actually worked according to their abilities. Here's the question, what are you doing with the resources He's left you? Are you putting them to, to work in, I'm going to just make it more a little bit more personal, to work in the church to compete, to complete the mission, remembering that we're working for the Master, whose name is Jesus. And let me tell you, just safeguarding what you have, keeping it buried and Doing nothing with it is not enough. Not only is it not enough, it is frankly quite dangerous. Let me jump ahead and say this. Jesus expects, Jesus expects a return on His investment in you. He has placed a significant investment with you. He expects to get something back. What are you doing? It's how we prove that we're ready. I'm going to just go ahead and say it right now. It is not that what we produce earns our salvation, but what we produce proves the reality of our salvation. 
See, the day of reckoning, the day of accounting is coming. Brings us to the third point, verses 19 to 30. After a long time, the master of the slaves came back to settle accounts with them. The day of reckoning, when he would determine what they had done with their responsibilities. First two slaves, good news, came, books opened. The one who had received five talents gained five more. The master was very pleased, responding with words very familiar to most Christians. Well done. So what we want to hear, right? Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things enter into the joy of your master. It's clear at this point in the parable, all of a sudden it's become all abundantly clear. We're talking about a little bit more than a master and a slave's business prowess. We are talking about nothing less than the responsibility we have as followers of Jesus Christ to be faithful and the rewards that await. First came the commendation. Well done, slave. You've been good. You've been faithful. Again, I, I, I like those words. Don't, don't you like those words? Isn't that what you want to hear Jesus say to you? I want you to notice something, though. He does not say, well done, good, and productive slave. He says, good, well done, good, and faithful slave. You have been faithful over a few things. I believe that faithfulness will result in productivity. That is, if we are faithful in the mission, God will take our faithfulness and multiply it in ways that he sees fit, perhaps in ways that only he sees. But that is ultimately his job, not ours. Ours is to be faithful with what we have, with our talents, with what's in our bag. We just got to be faithful. Paul said it this way when he wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, what then is Apollos? What is Paul? Uh, Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. The Lord gave opportunity. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now, he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward. According to what? To what he produces? No, according to his labor, according to his faithfulness. You see, the Corinthians were fighting over who was greater. I, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. I, I follow Apollos. And, and Paul writes and says, they're just all workers, faithfully fulfilling the different responsibilities that Christ has given. I plan it. Okay, fine. Apollos, water. But listen, it is God who gives the increase. It is Him. It is He who causes things to grow. Ours is simply to be faithful And I believe that he will bring results that is the results that he wants. That's his job. It's also important to notice that each slave, the one who had received five talents, the one that received uh, and produced five more, and the one that had received two and produced two more, each received the exact same reward. Did you notice that? The exact same commendation and rewards. I pointed that out to you when we were reading it. The point is, we are to be faithful with what God gives us, and since the results are up to Him, He rewards our faithfulness, not the results. That's His job. Faithfulness with two talents will get you the same reward as faithfulness with five. Again, to go back to that earlier illustration, um, uh, are you being faithful to what the master has given you to do? 
I didn't ask if you were being Billy Graham. I didn't ask if you were being Beth Moore. I asked if you are faithfully working to complete the mission. And if you are, you will hear the very same words that Billy and Beth hear. Well done, good and faithful slave. First came commendation, then came reward. This is very interesting. First came commendation, then came reward. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. I find that incredibly interesting. Most people misquote this verse. You have been faithful over a few things. Enter into the joy of your master. That is not what Jesus said. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but it is interesting. The idea seems to be that once we're saved and once we enter into the eternal kingdom, it is not like we're just going to be floating around on clouds all day playing harps, doing nothing, taking strolls down golden streets and visiting with grandma. No, you might have the opportunity to do like some of those things. But it seems rather that we will be given greater responsibilities. That's the reward. You get to work more. With no thorns and no thistles called employees or bosses, whatever those are for you. Anything beyond that is conjecture. I'll leave it to Randy Alcorn and his like. Leave it alone, but it sure appears that we will have increased responsibilities, not decreased. One thing is sure, the kingdom in all of its fullness will be joy Filled, enter, Jesus says, into the joy of your master. Can you imagine that? The, enter into the joy of Jesus. I'm going to suggest that there's a joy beyond comprehension. That, that's where we're headed. We're going somewhere. That's it. But that now brings us to the day of reckoning for this third slave. And frankly, this is the emphasis of this particular parable. Look at verses 24 and following with me again. I'm going to just read it very quickly. We need to move quickly. But we need to look at this again. We need to catch what he says. And the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. I was afraid. Went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. And the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not so and gather where I scattered no seed, then you ought to have at least put my money in a bank. And on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. If we take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have, taken away, throw out the worthless slave, into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This, this, this is very unsettling. I mean, it would, one thing, it would be one thing to be rewarded or not rewarded in heaven, right? <laughs> Which is what a lot of people are hoping for. Hey, man, I prayed a prayer. I might just make it in by the skin of my teeth, whatever that is. By the hair of my chinny, chin, chin, but I'll get in. Maybe not. Prayed a prayer. I asked Jesus into my heart when I was a kid. Sure. I kind of lived my own life, didn't really do much with my salvation, but hey, I, I believed. So eternal security and all that stuff. I know you believe in eternal security, Scott. I'm in, right? That doesn't appear to happen here. Clearly, the man who had done nothing with his talent, who buried it in the ground, 
not, a, not only did not receive commendation, he didn't receive reward, he didn't even receive heaven. Take what he has, cast him out into outer darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. We know that means hell. Sorry, Rob Bell. What, what is going on? Is this salvation by works? Look more closely. The key is what the slave said in verses 24 and 25, and we must remember he's talking about Jesus. I know you're a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. Is that right? Is that Jesus? Is that Jesus to you, hard man? Gathering? Or, or is Jesus the one who gave you what you did not deserve and call it grace? Master understood this. He knew the man's heart. He knew that this man did not know Jesus. Responded by saying, if you really believed all that, you would have at least put the talent on deposit of the bank so I could have at least had a minimal return. You didn't. Why? Notice the true character of the slave revealed in verse 26. You wicked and lazy slave. This is the real problem. He was wicked. He was lazy. He, had, he did not have a regenerate heart. He had no desire to work for the master. He lived his own wicked life and buried what the master had given him in the ground. I prayed a prayer. I... I, I, I I went to church as a kid. I went to vacation Bible school. Never really lived for Jesus. Buried it. The response is severe. Take what he has, give it to the one who has 10. In other words, give it to the one who has proven to be worthy of more responsibility. Verse 29, principle for to everyone who has, more shall be given. And he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have even what he has, taken away. Let me suggest what we have here. It is the very simple truth that James expresses in James chapter 2. Here it is. Faith without works is dead. It's meaningless. True faith, you see, is a faithful faith. True faith works It works in the kingdom. It is true that faith alone saves, but true faith is never alone. Faith without works is dead. It is of no value. You can't say, I, but, but, but I believe. James had a response to that. Well, even the devils believe and have the sense to tremble. How do we know you believed? You prove the reality of life-changing faith by a changed faithful life. Fact is, this Slave had been given the opportunity to receive much from the master, but he took what he had, buried it, no fruit. Proving himself to be wicked and lazy. Those who are truly redeemed will work in the kingdom. Again, it is not that works save you. Salvation is by grace through faith alone, but once you are saved, you will work. It's what followers of Jesus do. And we prove ourselves ready for his coming. The bottom line is this. Those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus will one day give an account of our lives. This is Jesus talking. He expects faithfulness. I've said it many times before. It always concerns me to hear someone say, especially at funeral time, my mom, my dad, my son, my daughter, they were saved when they were little. They prayed the prayer Sure, they never lived for Christ, but eternal security, right? 
They, they took it. They buried it. No real, true, saving faith. I want you to know I do believe in eternal security. I just prefer to call it perseverance of the saints because saints persevere. To be ready for his coming is to be active on behalf of the kingdom. It's this simple. Here it is. It's this simple. Christians live like Christians. They live as followers of Christ, working in the kingdom. And and, and while the the results are his responsibility, he will reward you for faithfulness. And in order to be ready, we must be busy. We must show initiative. We must take risk. We must be at work for the sake of the kingdom. This is what God expects of us. Otherwise, he would have given you your own personal rapture the moment you were saved. Why else are you here? To do something, to work for God. We are going somewhere. It's not Omaha. You might be interested to know that per his instructions, Carl Sandburg's ashes were returned to Galesburg, Illinois and buried under this remembrance rock. So he returned to the land, he returned to the air, but I'm going to tell you that is not where he was going. Where are we going? The answer is either to eternal presence of the master's joy or eternal place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. The train is on its way to judgment, to accounting. True believers demonstrate the reality of their faith through faithful service by doing something with the resources of the kingdom that God has given us. False believers demonstrate the bankruptcy of their faith by their lack of faithful service. It is true, faith alone justifies, but true saving faith is never alone. Let me pray for us. Father, we've um, asked and answered some important questions. What is the church? What it isn't? What is the mission? What it isn't? Who completes it? And recognizing that you have left us with responsibilities for which we will give an account. My prayer is that we will be found faithful so that we can hear words like, well done, good and faithful slave. (laughs) You've been faithful. Few things. Just a just some minor things. I will now make you ruler of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. May we hear those words. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.